This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Uh, Christy Blatchford writes for the National Post now. She also wrote the book on the Caledonia crisis that we faced for years and years. Literally, she wrote the book on it. The book is called Helpless. It is a, a book about what happened there, and now she's writing about it again because 10 years after the Douglas Creek estate takeover happened, a judge has ruled on an arrest of a non-Native protester who was there, and it has not gone necessarily well for the OPP. Christy joins me now. Christy, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, it certainly didn't go well for the OPP. The uh, the judge, uh, Ontario Superior Court, uh, Kim Carpenter-Gunn, um, found that several of the OPP officers who were being sued were uh, evasive or not reliable in their evidence. She found in favor of the man who was suing, that's Randy Fleming, a retired uh, steel worker, who one day in May of uh, 2009, three years after the occupation uh, began, but while there were still some tensions uh, going on, decided to attend a flag rally. This was a big deal, uh, Mr. Fleming said, because, uh, and I remember it this way as well, um, the OPP hadn't let anybody um, fly a Canadian flag. So they were going to on this day, and Randy Fleming decided he was going to walk down Argyle Street, uh, past the entrance to DCE, and go to the flag rally, carrying his own Canadian flag. Instead, what happened is, uh, as he's about 100 meters, I think, from the DCE entrance, Three OPP vans come sort of driving at him. He jumps into the ditch uh, so he doesn't endanger himself and then clambers out onto the higher ground where he's secure and safe. And that turns out to be perhaps part of the DCE territory. And whereupon six uh, or seven OPP officers take him to the ground pretty violently. The judge found they used excessive force. Uh, arrested him, uh, telling him, I think, he was going to be charged with attempting to breach the peace or breaching the peace, and ultimately he was charged with obstructing a police officer. And finally, uh, after 19 months, the Crown withdrew the charge. Big big surprise there. But uh, by then, Mr. Fleming uh, was suing the OPP, really, the government. Um, and he won big, I don't mean in terms of cash, but in the judge's uh, 84 pages when you she delivered a, a decision orally that I got a transcript of her uh, remarks. And uh, in all the ways that would matter to Randy Fleming, I know him a little bit, and he's a pretty proud and tenacious guy. Uh, in all the ways that would matter to him and to many of the people in Caledonia, uh, he won big. He probably he was awarded about $290,000 in general special damages and legal costs, uh, so he certainly won't keep most of that, but he'll keep some of it. And she said he was, the judge said he was a truthful witness, that he had done nothing wrong, that he was merely trying to walk peacefully. And this was caught on video, as you'll remember in those days, everybody videoed everything. Um, so the video demonstrates that he was, in fact, walking peacefully, carrying his flag on a public street in Canada. And yet he was arrested. She found he was falsely arrested, falsely imprisoned, uh, blah, blah, blah. And that she, she also found that the reason the OPP did this was because they had uh, they were reacting to a framework, which this is the Aboriginal Protocol Framework, which is a bit of a joke of a document, frankly, if you've ever read it. Uh, 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 the OPP had elevated the rights of the Native occupiers above the rights of other Canadians, and that's exactly what the people in Caledonia saw for so long, and which the government denied. And essentially then, what the judge was saying, and tell me if I'm putting wrong words in the wrong place here, but essentially... What she was saying was the OPP were operating on the basis of race-based policing. Yes, that's what she said. I mean, she didn't use those words, but that is the illogical inference that you can draw if you read her decision carefully. She also said at one point that uh, the uh, OPP was acting, did what they did because they were attempting to appease uh, a group of Native occupiers. And, and actually, that day, at least, uh, nobody was carrying weapons on DCE. The Native occupiers weren't armed. They weren't violent. They weren't threatening. The whole shamir, she said, really happened only because of the police. If She said at one point, if the police hadn't come driving their vans at Mr. Fleming, 
she finds, or she found, that he would have continued to walk peacefully past the gates to DCE. He would not have been harassed because uh, the protesters on the land weren't uh, weren't doing that, and uh, he would have gone to the rally, and nothing would have happened. So they not only behaved egregiously, but they caused it in the, in the, in the first instance. Christy, you've written about this extensively. As I say, you've got your the book out that's called Helpless, and, and I know from reading you over the years, you're not someone who deals very well with political correctness all the time. But I'm wondering, there has been examples even recently where we've seen political correctness drifting up into the bench. And I'm wondering if you expected this ruling today, because you know what, it would have probably been a lot easier just to make it go the other way and say, no, he did something wrong and he had to be dealt with. Um, yeah, but he didn't do anything wrong. That's the thing. I mean, it, that those are that's the truth of it. Those were the facts. And this was a judge who, you know, came to the whole question in a very narrow way because she was just hearing this particular lawsuit by one guy. But she saw very clearly exactly what the people of Caledonia themselves saw happening. You know, re- remember how the OPP were not acting and they were not moving to end some of the violence that was happening in the early days. Uh, and they were treating the local townspeople, the non-natives, as though they were the instigators when all they were doing was doing what the native occupiers were doing, except they were doing it peacefully. It's, I mean, it's, it's a disgrace. It's a great stain on the history of our province and our country, I'd say. And, and I agree with you. I think you do see that kind of political correctness sort of creeping into some judgments sometimes, uh, but it te- depends very much on the judge, and I think this judge is a straight shooter who called it as she saw it. Was there anything in the ruling that pointed to the origin of all this? Because, I, I mean, I don't think too many people, Christy, believe that the officers on the ground were doing this in a vacuum, that they had just chosen oh, no, to not. do this. Does it no, say, well, I mean, did anything say where, the, how f- high up this went? Um, well, she refers to the Aboriginal framework, um, and I've, I'm probably one of the few people in the world who cared enough when I was writing the book to actually read it. As I recall, hmm. it's 11 pages, and it's a muddled statement of uh, soft-headed thinking and principle, if anything. It purports to be a document that will help the police control critical incidents involving Aboriginals. It does nothing of the sort, um, and it, it is still, to my knowledge, in effect. I mean, this is how Ontario deals with Aboriginal occupations, uh, even if they're illegal. Uh, she doesn't deal with the origins of it. You're quite right. I mean, I talked to countless OPP officers who were themselves enraged and embarrassed by what they were being told to do, by the the lack of clarity, by their failure to act. I mean, and so, some of them were punished. I can't remember the guy's name now or if I was able to use it, but there was one guy who was transferred out of Caledonia because he he had stopped a, a, a native occupier who was doing something wrong. I forget the details, but you're right. This wasn't individual cops abandoning their duty. This was individual cops being told very plainly what to do, and that started with then-Commissioner Julian Fantino uh, and his deputy, uh, who then became the commissioner when Fantino uh, left, uh, Chris Lewis. And, of course, that they got their orders, never in writing, that I ever found. But I will go to my grave convinced that they were told what to do by the Dalton McGinty government. The the ruling here gives uh, Mr. Fleming, as you said, $290,000 or so for legal fees and some damages. And it also, as we've talked about, carries this rebuke of the police. D- does the rebuke, does, does it actually do anything? I mean, it's maybe embarrassing. It maybe gives him, uh, I'm talking about Mr. Fleming now, some peace of mind. But in the grand scheme of things, towards police for future policing situations like this, does it actually do anything? No, and it won't. There is no political will on any uh, in any political party in this province, at least that I've seen, um, to to tackle this kind of issue head on. And the reason is clear: people are intimidated by the thought that they'll be criticized, that there'll be protests, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. It's kind of a climate of intimidation, uh, in my view. And uh, I don't think this decision will change a thing, except that it gives. I think, great comfort to uh, Randy Fleming and to Gary McHale and some of the 
other people in Caledonia who have said all along that this was, I mean, race-based policing. It was two-tiered justice, you know, one rule for uh, Native occupiers and one rule for non-Native citizens. And that's wrong. I mean, that isn't what the rule of law is all about. The rule of law is about there is one law and we all obey it. And yet, you know, we, we do live in times when we have, we're in the middle of, you know, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. And I mean, race is such a, um, a, a minefield right now. If this had gone the other way, if the police had been overly aggressive with the native occupiers, that would have been atrocious. That would have caused all kinds of problems. Is it any less so in your mind that it was the other way because they are not the minority? Because that's the argument that some people are going to make. Well, they they were, you know, the, the non-native people were somehow, it, it's not the same. It's not equal. And so you can't call it racism one way or the other. I don't think it would have been any better. And at no point did I ever think that the police should have gone on to D.C. and started swinging clubs and arresting people. That. That wasn't the answer either, but you may remember there was a uh, a court order from uh, the late uh, David Marshall, uh, Ontario Superior Court judge, giving the telling the police get on that reserve and get the occupiers out and you know see what happens afterwards. You, but you you it was a private lawful housing development. I mean the the Henning brothers who who were the developers, weren't some big shots from the big city coming to, you know, ruin the town. They had gone through all the processes. They'd got all the OKs that they that were required, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They played by all the rules. Nor yet, were they enemies of Native people, as far as I understand it. No, I don't think, I don't think they were at all. They're lovely guys. They really are. I mean, so I, I don't think that was it ever. Uh, you know, and the answer is not to... The answer is not to be too aggressive. That isn't what anybody would want. But the answer is not to turn the other cheek when the law is that you're sworn to uphold is being broken. You're you're supposed to, within your discretion as a as a cop, you're supposed to enforce the law. And when people are tossing cars off bridges and burning hydro transformers and intimidating old people who wandered too close to in their car, I mean, remember all that stuff when. Mobs are attacking cameramen mm-hmm. and stealing film. I mean, and when a group of occupiers is forcing people to accept and use native-issued uh, passports to get to their own homes, I mean, I don't have words to describe how outrageous that is. And yet nobody ever really cared. Toby Barrett cared. John Tory, who was then the leader of the uh, uh, provincial progressive conservatives cared. That was it, really, you know. And the mayor, uh, who's Marie Trainer. God, I can't believe I remember her. <laughs> but I mean, those people cared, and they tried, and they tried to do the right thing, and they were for their efforts. They were shut down or or harassed. You know, I, the Hennings tried to do the right thing, and look where where it got them. Christy, you wrote in the piece today, and it's in the National Post for those who want to read more about this. Uh, you wrote, there's a quote, this offered in microcosm a vindication for many in Caledonia. Now, I understand that this would offer a vindication to Mr. Fleming because he was at the center of this. Do you really think that for the other people, again, who had to get the passports and had to live with this and had to go through this, does this offer some kind of vindication? In the same way, probably, that me writing that book did because I was an outsider, I didn't have any dog in that race, and I saw what I saw when I read through documents, interviewed people, looked at the videotape. So I don't think it did much, but I think it it gave comfort to the people who felt so aggrieved for so long and so abandoned by their government and their police. Remember, the police didn't even, the OPP didn't even police the sixth line for years after this. They wouldn't go on the line. Oh, I mean, it's crazy. So um, it just told so them yeah. that they told people that they were not crazy for thinking that something was exactly. a completely askew. It's like if I'm looking out my window and I see somebody stab somebody and I report it to the police and the police say, no, no, nobody was stabbed. And I show them the video <laughs> that say I took and they say, oh yeah, but that wasn't, yeah, there's no date on that video. You can't see when that happened. So it's exactly what this judgment does. It does just what you say. Maybe vindicate is the wrong word. I'm not sure. But I think it gives comfort to people that somebody is recognizing 
that what they said happened, happened. Just before I let you go, are there more lawsuits out there that, that have been filed in response to this in one way or another, whether it's directly for police action or in the, in, in yeah, the whole I big picture? Yeah, I believe there are. And I think in that sense, this case will also probably help them. Christy Blatchford from the National Post, go read the piece. It's online uh, at thenationalpost.com. It's in the paper. It's a great piece. And again, Christy, for, and you know this, for people around here who lived this for years, I mean, 900 CHML talked Caledonia, I think, for about five straight years because it was the story. Um, this is, uh, for a lot of those people, this, as you say, is some kind of vindication or comfort or something good at the end of this, yeah. even if it's a small thing. Christy, really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, you know what? I mean, I can remember long before I was doing a show on this station, the day after day after day after day, L, uh, I was going to say LRT, Caledonia was LRT. If you remember, if you've been around long enough, if you are a Hamiltonian, a Caledonian, Caledona, Caledonian, um, you'll remember that 10 years ago, nine years ago, eight years ago, this was a daily story about the takeover, the occupation of a part of Caledonia. And it has kind I mean, it's gone away for all intents and purposes, not necessarily the occupation, but the, the story, it's just become part of life and it's not as hot. And I don't just mean hot as a story. I mean, the situation is not as inflamed as it was. So it's just sort of blended into the background. But for those who were living there, I can remember, I can, I can specifically, and probably you can too, remember listening to shows on this station call-in shows with people from Caledonia just at wit's end saying, what are, what do we do? What, what's the, what, what options do we have when we can't get any help? And let me say this, and I want to be very, um, I want to be very clear on this because I, like Christy, I believe entirely, I believe wholeheartedly with 1000% of my being that the police on the ground, the OPP officers on the ground, were not unilaterally deciding on how to police this situation. This was not police officers showing up and being cowards and saying, we are not willing to go and settle this thing. This was not that. Don't, next time you come across an OPP officer, don't point to this lawsuit and this outcome as an indictment or a slapdown of the OPP officers wearing the uniforms. There is no chance in a million years that an OPP officer, if the instructions had been to police this as normal, that an officer who refused to police it as normal would have just walked away or been fined by their superiors. This was coming from somewhere. We don't know exactly high up. I asked Christy that question. We don't know exactly high up. Don't, don't. Don't be dismissive. Don't be looking down on the OPP officers wearing the uniform. This was not about them. But more than anything, this was about the people living in Caledonia who, again, we heard their voices day after day after day, month after month after month for years on this station, on CHCH. Remember, it was a CHCH cameraman that got clunked in the head, had to go to the hospital because of this when he was shooting film. This is, I don't know how much the people in Caledonia feel better about things because there has been a judge who has now ruled that, you know what? Yeah, it was wrong. What happened was not right. Does that make them feel better? Does that satisfy them for two or three or whatever years of inconvenience and worse? No, I would doubt that. But I'm sure, as Christy Blatchford just said, that at least knowing that someone who is not from within Caledonia, who is looking at this from a legal perspective and has now ruled that they were wrongly done by at least one person representing all of Caledonia in a sense, that at least that one person has in it from a judicial position made the decision that wrong was done has to at least make them think they weren't crazy. They were not out of their minds for thinking that something was really askew here. And if Christie's right, and if there's a lot more lawsuits out there, you're good. I, I would kind of expect that we'll be hearing more about this again. But we will see. Anyway, I appreciate Christy Blatch for doing that tonight. If you missed her, you can catch up with it on the podcast. 
at the end of the show, it'll be up on the Scott Radley Show page at 900CHML. If there's someone you know who is living in Caledonia or has lived there through this and they want to hear that, you can send them to the Scott Radley Show page, 900CHML.com. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900CHML. Great story today on the front page of the Hamilton Spectator. I hope you got a chance to read it. If you didn't, you can find it online. It's written by Joanna Frickatich, and it's essentially, well, not essentially, it's a story about an exchange program. There's millions of exchange programs. This one is very unique, though, because this is a doctor exchange. And what we're doing here in Hamilton, we all know that Hamilton is now a hub for medical stuff, all kinds of medical things. We were once Steel Town. We're really becoming Medical Town now, which is not a bad thing at all. Some of the best cancer facilities and, and other great places. But we're also a center for teaching. We are now, we now have a program in which we will bring over some doctors from developing countries who will come here for a period of time, six months, a year, maybe longer, and they will learn from our experts how to do certain things, and then they will go back home and take that knowledge with them, either to practice or to teach it to others. Alan Sharp is the Director of Development of the International Outreach Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare. He is really the man who is behind this, and he joins us now. Alan, thanks for doing this tonight. You're very welcome. Good to be on the radio. Where did this idea come from? Does it exist elsewhere, or is this unique to us? Well, our particular uh, idea started back in the 80s, 1985. It was started by the Sisters of St. Joseph. They're the ones that started St. Joe's Hospital in Hamilton. They started it back in the 80, 1985 when they did a little bit of uh, help with in, in the island of Dominica, uh, and it kind of grew from there. there. There are other programs around the world uh, where medical schools, uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, places in the UK, they they will bring uh, doctors to their medical schools. But the big difference between their programs and ours is that in their programs, they only offer what's called an observership. So that the doctor comes to the medical school and he's allowed into the surgery and he's allowed into, uh, onto the patient floors, but only to observe. Not allowed to touch patients. They're not allowed to set bones, deliver babies do histories, you know, anything like that. Whereas the doctors that we bring uh, from Uganda, Haiti, and Guyana, they're fully licensed by the Ontario College of uh, Surgeons and Physicians, and they are insured, and they, they practice medicine in exactly the same way that a Canadian resident or a Canadian clinical fellow would. They're, they're just supervised. There's so, many, there's so many questions, so let me, let me start with this one, because we, first of all, and with what you're just talking about, I think everybody has heard of immigrants who have come to this country, they are licensed or trained as lawyers or engineers or whatever it is back in their own country, and they come here and their licensing doesn't count, and so they basically have to start over. How are we able to jump those hoops or get through those that red tape with doctors to come here? Because... I would have thought that they would have fallen into the same category. You've got to basically do all your medical all over again to prove to us that you're doing it the Canadian way. Uh, so the big difference is that w- what we're doing is we're bringing over um, uh, medical students and we're bringing over uh, fully-fledged doctors. So we bring, over, um, we bring over residents who come for maybe a three- or four-month uh, residency, and they, they study a specialty while they're here, and then they go back to their country and practice it. For example, I was I was just talking today to two Ugandan um, uh, uh, obstetricians. They're studying obstetrics at their medical school in Uganda, but they're coming here for four months for specialty training in non-invasive ways of uh, doing surgery for women that are expecting. We also bring over uh, doctors who are fully-fledged, licensed, practicing doctors in their countries, and we bring them to Canada for uh, specialized subspecialty training. For example, uh, in, in the country of uh, Uganda, uh, there's a, an orthopedic surgeon called Edward Karandi, and he didn't have specialized training in trauma. And Uganda is one of the worst countries in the world for having a road traffic accident. Um, many people die in road traffic accidents, and they don't have enough orthopedic surgeons. So he came to Canada for a year of subspecialty training. He's, al- he's already a doctor, He's already an orthopedic surgeon, but he came for subspecialty training in orthopedic trauma. So that's what we give them that they can't get in their own country. And how is are these 
Are these things that they learn very transferable? And the reason I ask that question is because we will have equipment, we'll have facilities here that if you go to Uganda, you won't necessarily have. So is what they are learning able to still be done over there? Uh, Yes, because um, we only bring over a student if we know that that student can, or that doctor can be back to their country. With the Ministry of Health, we work with the schools and work with the teaching hospitals in the in the countries where we work. So we only take a a, a trainee that's been approved by the Faculty of, of Health Sciences Medical School. So we don't just take people that just kind of want to come to Canada. We take people that the countries need to be trained. And so part of our our whole process is that we talk to the dean of the medical school, we talk to the the administrators at the hospital. And we find out what their capacity is in terms of equipment, supplies, and so on. And so when we bring over uh, a resident, let's say this, this fellow, Edward Karandi, we didn't teach him any orthopedic techniques that he could not do back in Uganda because they, he doesn't have the equipment. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Um, you know, you, do you get the equipment and then train the surgeon, or do you train the yeah. surgeon and then get the, <laughs> and get the equipment? Um, but um, what we do is we, we train them. Uh, sometimes it's kind of a modified curriculum where there'll be there'll be certain modules that the that the trainee just wouldn't wouldn't be studying because it doesn't apply in their country. And essentially, are what they are doing. If you were in uh, Hamilton St. Joe's Hospital, might you then be treated by one of these doctors, or would they always be in concert with a physician who was a, a, a local? Oh no, no, you may very well be treated by one of them. For example, we had um, we had a, a nephrologist come over. She's a, a kidney specialist. She came here for a full year of, of subspecialty tra- training in nephrology, and she was supervised by a St. Joe's, uh, ne- you know, nephrologist. But she had a she had a caseload. She had patients that she saw under supervision. What does it cost to do this? So, so, oh, sorry. So if you you know if you're a Canadian laying in in a in a, in a Hamilton hospital bed. Um, and a resident comes to your bedside, that resident is being supervised, and that resident is probably a Canadian, uh, or it might be a clinical fellow who's being supervised. Uh, in, a, in our case, it might be a Ugandan who, who's being supervised and has the, all the same privileges and all the same um, access to patients that a Canadian would. What would be the cost to do this, and where does the money come from? So... The cost is simply um, the kind of hard costs that we have of flying the physicians to Hamilton. We fly them here, we fly them back, we put them up in in apartments, we pay for their food, we pay for their their bus pass, their insurance, uh, you know, their medical licensing, their visas, we give them a stipend. Uh, And all of that costs around 30,000 Canadian. So they they do not get paid a salary while they're here. Many of these doctors um, are the only breadwinner in their home, and they give up a year's pay to come to Canada to study. So it, it, they come at considerable financial hardship. Hmm. And the, the professors at McMaster and, and area hospitals that teach them, they don't get paid either for teaching these residents and, and clinical fellows. So the, you know, the professor teaches for free, and the, the trainee comes and gives a year's worth of labor for free. But we have to cover the costs of, of bringing them here. They're kind of hard costs that just don't go away. And th- that money comes from uh, individuals. We've got individuals in the Hamilton area and the kind of greater Toronto area, Burlington, Oakville, Mississauga, Toronto, uh, who, who support us through monthly donations. They support us through, uh, you know, one, one at a time donations. We also get some funding from foundations. And we have a few doctors that give... Uh, through their corporations, but really they're individuals that are incorporated. But the majority of our funding comes from individuals in the in the Hamilton area. Does any part of this involve? Now, I know that St. Joe's has doctors, uh, staff doctors who also go the other way that that are working overseas. Uh, Dr. Gene Chamberlain has been on this program a number of times from Save the Mothers, so I know that happens. But is that part of this program, or is that something completely different that they are doing on their own? If you have locals who are going over to other parts of the developing world, so so Gene Chamberlain has a particular ministry in Africa, uh, and it's it's for mothers in particular. Uh, she's she's got her own charitable uh, 
foundation and she does that work that way. But we do, I think we do work with her when we're in country. Uh, we used to do a lot of this where we would send a clinician from Hamilton who would go to Uganda or Guyana or Haiti or other countries where we worked and do a week's worth or two weeks worth of, you know, hands-on clinical care. Um, but we discovered that the, there just wasn't much of a return on that investment. The, the clinician would go there for a week and, you know, set bones, deliver babies, do surgery, whatever it was that they did, and then they would leave. And there wasn't much left behind. And we, we soon discovered that the, the biggest bang for your buck is to train a doctor uh, from those countries. We, uh, McMaster University does have um, an opportunity for Canadian residents. So, you know, Canadian, Canadian medical stu- school students who are now uh, resi- doing their residency. Uh, McMaster does have an opportunity where they go to Uganda through the International Outreach Program and uh, they do you know, like a one or two or four week kind of a rotation at the at those hospitals. It's it's that's really, that's really for the benefit of the Canadian residents, but you know there's a tremendous benefit to where they to the work that they do as well. Well, it's I mean there's tremendous benefit all around. I I I applaud you. I applaud the people who are involved in this because honestly, it's um. You know, we forget. It's, we just had Thanksgiving weekend. We can be thankful for what we have here and the fact that we can bring people over and help them go back there. And honestly, for, you know, when you when you start talking about the dollars, I was expecting a lot more. For I mean, 30000 bucks is um, is a fraction of what we would pay a doctor over here and we're able to train someone and put them up for a year and send them back there to do some some things. And I look at, I mean, this and again, Gene Chamberlain, Dr. Gene with Save the Mothers and, and Mercy Ships and all these other groups that are out there doing this stuff. I, I applaud you. It's, it's, it's wonderful what you're doing. And I, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about it tonight. Can I just tell you that Please. the difference 30,000 30, makes? So in 2008, we brought over a, an obstetrician gynecologist called Sarah Nakabulwa. She's a, a doctor who works at Malago Hospital in Kampala. And she came to Canada for uh, specialized training in obstetrics. And when she went back to Kampala, you know, she was visiting her patients on the ward, women that had just given birth, and she discovered that in a typical week, two or three women would give birth at Malago Hospital. They would go into the recovery room, they'd spend the night, and the the team would go in there, and the mother would have passed away. And Sarah Nakabulwa thought to herself, when I was in Canada, when I was at McMaster, when I was at local, you know, the local hospitals in Hamilton, I saw that there was another way, you know, I, and I figured there's got to be something we can change. And so, so what she did was she and her team created a what's called a high dependency unit. It's a special room for mothers that are at high risk of hemorrhaging or getting complications after they've given birth. And so she implemented this special protocol, created this special room, and the women stopped dying. Now, that happened in 2008, and since then... Uh, because of her intervention, because of what she learned in Hamilton, around 1,200 mothers have lived and not died at Malago Hospital. That's that's the difference that you can make with the gift to the International Outreach Program. It it saves lives, you know, decades later. And of course, she now has a faculty position at McCary University. She's teaching other obstetricians what she learned in Canada eight years later. It's an exponential effect. It's uh, it's a great story, and it's a great program, and I really appreciate you taking some time today to explain it. Uh, thanks, Alan. Appreciate you doing it. You're very welcome. That is uh, Alan Sharp, the director of the development or the, of the International Outreach Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare. It is, uh, when you think about those numbers, um, 1,200 mothers, he says, saved for $30,000. You realize that's a cost of $25 per life. I mean, that's remarkable when you start thinking about that because we're, you know, we have the sunshine list and we get these amounts that come out for, do- for doctors and what they're making. And, you know, that's fine. But we bring someone over here. We can do it. We bring them to Hamilton. We've got the ability because Hamilton is such a great center now for medical research and tr- teaching and everything else. And we put $30,000 into someone who go back, who goes back and saves 1,200 people in less than a decade. And again, that works out to right now. That works out to $25 per person who didn't die. I mean, think about how little that really is. And, and it will, it'll go down and down and down because the longer she's doing it, the longer, the more people will be saved. It's just, it's, it's a great, great program. And again, there's, there's this, there's Save the Mothers, there's Mercy Ships, there's all these different ones that are out there and they're all fantastic. But this one is unique to us and that's, that's outstanding. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. All right, while we're talking about things that have been around for a little while, if, you, if you've been listening to the radio for a number of years, you have probably heard this song once upon a time. You've heard this song, right? It's a pretty familiar song. If you listen to Canadian radio back in the 70s, you heard that song. Daytime, nighttime. It was a great song. Well, my next guest is not on the show because he sang that song, catchy though it may be. He is on the show because right now everybody, everybody is talking about the Toronto Blue Jays. And back in 1981, he sang this song. Got a diamond, you got nine men, got a hat and a bat, and that's not all. You got the bleachers, got them from spring till fall, you got a dog and a drink and the umpire's call. What do you want? Let's play ball. Is that a fly ball or is it a seagull coming in from the lake? To catch the game, it's the last inning. Our guys are winning. Dave's put down a smoker, a strike, and you got no doubt. What do you want? Let's play ball. That voice is my next guest, Keith Hampshire, who joins me now. Keith, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, you're very welcome. You are a man, clearly, of endless musical talents. <laughs> you think? And, and I understand you did a whole bunch of commercial jingles, too, and, and ads and things like that as well. Oh, yeah. That, that, uh, that sort of kept me alive after uh, my recording career ended. How did you... Now, again, most people, I'm guessing, didn't really know you for... Okay, Blue Jays, we'll get to that in a minute, but you didn't write this. How did you end up singing it? How did you end up stumbling into being the guy who is the voice of Okay, Blue Jays? Well, after my uh, recording career ended, I uh, decided to step away from the public uh, um, limelight or whatever you want to call it, and uh, I decided to um, live an idyllic life on a farm uh, north of Toronto and uh, raise my kids and... um, have a few horses, and uh, make a living doing radio and television commercials. And uh, so uh, I sang a bunch of jingles. I did a few voiceovers and um, did some theater. I did some television. I did all sorts of things. But uh, um, one day my agent called me with an audition for uh, the Blue Jays song. And uh, they were, I guess an ad agency was putting together this song to go with a, a promotional video that they were going to pitch to different uh, areas to try and drum up interest in the ball team, I suppose. And uh, hmm. so, anyway, so it was not playing in an audition along with I don't know ten, twenty, thirty other guys, and uh, I was the one they chose. So it wasn't planned that this was going to be the song that would live forever. It was just going to be to try and move some product. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, now, I think they were just trying to drum up interest because uh, I guess back in the early '80s there wasn't. Wasn't a whole lot of interest. You, when I played the first song, Daytime, Nighttime, and then Blue Jay, OK Blue Jays, I got to tell you, you don't sound like the same guy. You obviously have an ability to find the voice, I guess is the best way to say it, for what song you're singing. How did you decide on what you were going to do for OK Blue Jays? Well, I don't know. I um, I guess I'm kind of a chameleon. I sort of listened to the backing track, and uh, it sort of sounded like a Randy Newman kind of song, so... I thought I'd um, emulate his uh, mindset, if you will, and uh, uh, instead of doing a you know a power power ballad sort of thing, just um, give it make it kind of quirky. It, you know what? I don't know if it would have sounded like that 
beforehand, but it sure does when you talk about Randy Newman, it sure does have that kind of sound after you did it. Now, when you go in for the audition, do you go in, you've obviously heard the song, you've practiced it, you've walked in with your own interpretation of it, but is it just stand there and do the whole thing and then they said you're hired or did you have to come back weeks and weeks later when they chose you? Um, <laughs> it was a long time ago, you know. <laughs> um, I, 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 um, I think I, I think I went in and auditioned, and then uh, um, you know, a uh, few days later, I was called back to uh, do the final gig. Were you a Blue Jay fan? Were you a baseball fan? Always, always, always. Baseball is my love, my my one true love. I um, uh, it's it's my favorite sport. Let's put it that way. So when you went to this, uh, I mean, we hear stories all the time of people who get connected to something that's completely not really a fit. You were a baseball guy then. You walked into this knowing what this was for, that this could be a match with you. Uh, yes, I suppose so. I mean, I uh, I still um, uh, go to Dunedin every every winter. Really. And go to spring training. As a matter of fact, they've had me uh, sing the uh, national anthem for a, a number of years. Uh, not every game, but uh, sort of once a year, up until a couple of years ago when they had a, a disaster happen. But they, um, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really involved in, in. As a matter of fact, they had me, uh, they had me sing the Blue Jays song once for the seventh inning stretch at a, at a, a spring training game. And uh, they forgot that the song was two and a half minutes long, and they were sort of <laughs> tapping their toes and looking at their watches while I was in the middle of this. They wanted to get back to the game, to tell you the truth. Well, have, you ever, have you ever done it at the big game? Have you ever done it at Rogers Center? Oh, no, 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 no. Would you? Well, sure I would, but I've never been asked. I wonder why that is. I, I mean, why, why would they not? I don't know. Maybe they don't, don't, I don't know. You can't be that hard to find. I found you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm easy to find. It's um, phone book. You, you so when you do this, and again, I know that this was not intended to be. I don't think at that time something people would sing in the seventh inning stretch. But you, what did you figure you would just do this and it would vanish in a couple of years and on with the next thing? It was just a job. That's right. Yeah, you don't expect it to uh, to stick around by any means. And I mean, the song is dated. There's a couple of references in it. To uh, one is to Dave Steeb. And the other references to Billy Martin, the uh, uh, deceased manager of the uh, Oakland Athletics. So, uh, you know, the song is definitely dated. Well, but you know what? I, I caught the the reference to uh, to Dave. He still I can't remember what the word was now in the second verse that he uh, it was about. The, you know, he still had a heater going. He still had the he still had it in his arm. But I didn't even catch the Billy Martin part. Um, but this song, so you're, you you do this, and then all of a sudden they start playing it at the Blue Jays. Uh, eventually, they start playing at the game, and I understand. This suddenly now starts getting on the chart. People started buying this this single. Yeah, what happened was the fellows who um, wrote the song, Tony Kozenek and Jack Lenz, they um, went to the Blue Jays' uh, head office or whatever and said, uh, would you be adverse to us um, uh, pressing a few copies of this uh, record and selling it at the games? And they thought, the Blue Jays people thought, oh, that's a, that's a gimmick. That's sure, why not? So um, that's how it uh, sort of became a record and started getting sold at the games. And when it actually became a gold record. Actually became a gold record. That's amazing. You're telling me. <laughs> Did you ever get a copy of a gold record? Well, yeah, that's a funny story, too, because what happened was I was uh, reading the paper one day, and there was a small little um, notation in the corner of the entertainment section. It said the... Uh, um, OK Blue Jays, the Toronto Blue Jays theme song has been uh, certified gold by Canadian <laughs> Record Industry Association or whatever. And uh, so I thought, oh, wow, I've never had a gold record before. I supposedly sold three quarters of a million records worldwide, but uh, uh, never got a gold. So I phoned up the record company, which happened to be my old record company, and I tried to talk them into uh, sending me a gold record. And finally, I got a hold of somebody who who was in a power of, uh, of of actually getting something done. And uh, they said, yeah, sure, no problem. So anyway, uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a uh, doorbell rings, and uh, there's a, uh, a delivery man there, and he says, are you Keith Hampshire? And I said, yeah, I am. And he says, special delivery. And I said, oh, fabulous. Could be my gold record. He said, could be. 
He says, that'll be $81, please. <laughs> nice of the record company. Let's make you pay for it. Do you still have it? Oh, by all means, yeah. It's hanging behind my toilet. <laughs> why, why, pray tell, is it behind your toilet? Well, we don't want to. We don't want to rub people's noses in when they come in the house. They just, uh, you know, if they have to go to the bathroom, uh, then they're, oh, oh, you know. But, I, okay, so people come out of the jaw and they've just relieved themselves, and they've suddenly discovered that the person they're having dinner with is the guy who sang "Okay Blue Jays." That's that's got to be something you'd want to start the conversation with. Not when they come out. Now they want to shake your hand out well, of the bathroom. No, we're we're uh, <laughs> we're uh, we're famous in Canada. And anybody who's famous in Canada knows that uh, you can walk down any street in any town and nobody's going to recognize you. So uh, why would you rub their noses in it? Still, though, you know, the, the fact that we are now, it was 1981, so I mean, you're 35 years later and that people still know this song and probably know it better than ever. And you're talking generations now, Keith, of people who know maybe not the entire thing, but, you know, the first verse and the cor- and the chorus. That's got to be pretty cool that people can. That every time you watch a game, people are singing your song. Well, that, you're tr- that's true. It is. Uh, it's a great feeling, and uh, I love going down to the Rogers Center. Yeah, it's called the Rogers Center now. Yeah. <laughs> Taking my grandkids, and they sort of look at me at the seventh inning stretch and say, hey, "That's you, Papa," and I said, "Yeah, that's me." Do you sing along with okay. it when it comes on? Yep. And is anyone loud enough for anyone around you to hear? Um, sometimes, yeah. Has anyone ever caught on when you're at the stadium that that's you? No. Have you ever told anyone? Um, uh, yeah, a couple of people who may have uh, overheard my grandkids, but. Uh, and what and what's the response when on those few times that you've that someone has found out? What do they say? No, it's not you. <laughs> so how do you do you prove it? Or do you say all right, well, whatever. If you don't want to believe me, that's fine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You ever, have you ever signed an autograph for it? Like really? I say, it's very easy to be famous in Canada. Yeah, you know what though? I, I, I mean, I look, I put this kind of in the category in a lot of ways, Keith, with um, with the Hockey Night in Canada song with Dolores Clayman, or with uh, you know some other people who have written these songs, and they've just become part of the musical vernacular, part of the culture of our country, and we don't necessarily know the name of the person, but we sure know the music. Yes, it, it's amazing. It, do you? This is an odd question, I suppose, because it has been it has been thirty five years. And when you hear, do you like the song? I love the song. I, I think it's a fabulous song. Very clever. And I don't mean I, I didn't mean it like that. My 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 question is: almost everybody who is in some sort of performing career looks back at what they did and they find something that they wish they had done a little different or a little better when they were recording or performing or whatever else. Do you hear anything and you go, oh, I wish that I had done this or that? Or do you hear it and you go, you know what? No, I nailed it that day. No, I nailed it that day. No, that's good. <laughs> no, that's great. That's, I mean, that's fantastic that you, that, that you can do that because if you didn't, that would drive you nuts for 35 years to hear what's driving you nuts. Well, yeah, but can you imagine some some poor schmo who uh, records a song and sure the song's a hit and that's the only hit he's got and then for the rest of his life he has to sing that freaking song every <laughs> exactly. night. Exactly. No, exactly. I, it, it's a, I'm going to sing that song again and I've got to make it sound fresh and new and yet make it sound like the original. Yeah, I can't imagine. When was, honestly, when was the last time you sang the song in, I mean, completely, has it been in, has it been years or every once in a while, do you actually go into a quiet room and let her rip? You mean Blue Jays? Yeah. Uh, uh, probably the last time I sang it in completion was at spring training in Dunedin those many years ago. It is, uh, honestly, it's a, it's a fantastic story. It's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful piece of Canadiana because again, especially now, Keith, that, the Blue Jays have become Canada's team, and you see the numbers. I was talking before we came on about the TV ratings. Ten million unique Canadians, individual Canadians, are watching part of that last game on Sunday night. And everybody who was watching, I guarantee, knows at least part of that song. That, that, again, that has to be a, an amazing thing to know, that something you were involved with has become just so much immersed in the culture, so much part of the sports story of this country. I suppose so. It's um, uh, <laughs> it's just something that happened, and uh, I'm very proud of it. 
Well, and as I say off the top, uh, Daytime, Nighttime was a pretty good song too, by the way. When that comes on, um, oh, I didn't even realize, and again, most people would not have. Same same person, different voice. Who knew? But uh, it is uh, it is a great story. Tomorrow night, or not tomorrow, Friday night, when the Blue Jays play, they won't be playing it in Cleveland, so, so I guess it'd be Friday, Saturday, maybe Monday, when they come back to Toronto, people can be listening for the song again, and now know it's Keith Hampshire. Yep. who sang that song, made it famous. Keith, really appreciate you taking some time tonight. Thanks for doing this. It's fantastic. You're welcome. Very welcome. Thanks for calling. It's uh, There you go. There is the guy. There is an actual person who sang OK Blue Jays. And, I, I mean, of course there's an actual person, right? Except whoever thought of it. Whoever thought, because it was just a song. But he is out there, and he has other songs. He did a great, um, a great version. You can go online. It went up the charts. A first cut is the deepest. You know, the one that Rod Stewart sang as well and Cat Stevens. Uh, he also has an amazing version of that. And we played you the daytime, nighttime that was a hit in Canada as well. I don't know if it was a hit around the rest of the world, but it's a great song. But there you go. And if you go to a Jays game, you can go online, by the way. And I'm going to post on my Facebook page, on the Scott Radley Show Facebook page, the complete OK Blue Jays song. Because there's actually, as he says, it's two and a half minutes long. It's not just the one you get up to and... They do the first verse, and then the chorus a bunch of times, and you have those annoying people on top of the dugouts dancing around, and then you sit down. There's a whole song to it. I'm going to post the whole song on my Facebook page, Scott Radley Show Facebook page, so you can go and find it and see it, see him, see what he looks like maybe. I'll see if I can find one where it actually has his face so you can uh, you can see who he is. But that is Keith Hampshire. It's I've always loved that song, partly because it's it's cheesy and silly, and but it's traditions, sort of like Oski Wee Wee, if that's not sacrilegious to say. It's cheesy and silly, but it's tradition. Uh, and also because up until probably I was in my late teens, uh, I was not really aware that the seventh inning stretch was uh, not a fun thing in every other ballpark. Because in every because in Toronto, it's okay, Blue Jays, and take me out to the ballgame. In every other ballpark, they do America the Beautiful. And, or God bless or, America. Sorry, God bless yeah. America. That's the one. After 9-11. And, and it's considerably less fun. It's it's much more, it's a moving thing, but it's not as, like, I've always, I always saw the seventh inning stretch as a silly, weird thing because it had two very old and silly songs attached to it. Uh, well, yeah, in Chicago, at Cubs games, it was Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And with the Blue Jays, it was OK Blue Jays. And then other places had their... Whatever, and then nine eleven happened, and God bless America now became the standard that you every place except for Toronto they sing it in the seventh inning stretch, and here we're not in the states, and so we do our thing still up here, and it's take it's uh, uh, okay Blue Jays, so and take me out to the ball game, they do play both. Anyway, Keith Hampshire, for those who never knew his name, that's his name. The Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred AM nine hundred CHML.